Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Australia is waking up. What you consume, how you get from A to B, where you choose to shop. These everyday choices matter. And who you bank with does too. Shape the world you want to see. Join the bank with clean money. Search Bank Australia. Hey there, it's Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm happy to be introducing this episode. It's a conversation with our new editor, Kirsty DeGarris, whose first issue of the mag is out now. The theme is A Meaningful Life, and it's got lots of great reads to remind yourself of what's good and beautiful in the world. She's talking to a longtime friend of ours. Actually, can't believe we haven't had her on the podcast already. Kemi Nekvapil. Kemi coaches female executives and entrepreneurs. She's also an international speaker, an author, and a facilitator of Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program. Kemi's latest book is Power, a woman's guide to living and leading without apology. And in this chat, Kirsty and Kemi talk about some of the stories and ideas that have informed that work. I love Kemi's power. It's bright, compelling, intuitive, and aware. I'm very excited to welcome Kemi Nekvapil to the Dumbo Feather podcast today. Kemi, how are you? I am delighted to be here. Very happy to be having one of the Dumbo Feather conversations. I love everything Dumbo Feather does. We're really happy to have you. I've just read your book, Power. A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. And I say in this conversation with you as a white woman, I feel that there are times when I'm aware of my privileges and other times I'm probably not aware. And those times when I'm not aware of my privilege are possibly more damaging and impactful than when I am aware. And so I promise to try to be as aware as I can of those privileges in our conversation today, because that is a big part of the change that we need to make. Wonderful. And I promise you that I'll also keep an eye on my privileges and my assumptions, because I think that's part of what it is, isn't it? It's being honest with who we are and where we've picked up what we've picked up. And we are at a point in history, at a point in time, when we all need to really explore how we navigate the world and how it is for others to navigate the world, because same world, very different shoes. Absolutely. You have had quite a journey to where you are today. You wrote in your book about a challenging childhood in the British foster system, but also you've had several careers. You've been a baker and a yoga teacher, very involved with the raw food movement, I believe. So how did you get to here in boardrooms and leadership conversations and on stages? I think it was Steve Jobs that said that it's when you look back that you see how everything has come together. So I left school at 16. And I loved school because as a foster child and any listener that resonates with having a kind of insecure childhood, the fact that school was very organized and I knew exactly where I had to be and who was going to be there when and what was expected of me, I loved school. I actually looked at going to the military for the same reason. 
but went to baking. I arrived at my last set of foster parents when I was 13 and just love food. I think it's so funny with the pandemic how so many people went to baking and to food for comfort. And I think for where I was as a teenager landing with my fifth set of foster parents, I went straight to food and creating and bringing beauty and delight to others while I was creating it for myself. My foster mother was a careers teacher. So suddenly this whole world opened up for me. Instead of this idea of you make do with what you had, I suddenly had this insight into, oh, I maybe get to choose what I want to do. So then she said to me one day, so are you going to leave school at 16? What's the plan? And suddenly I just gave her this list. I was like, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to be a baker. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a childcare. I just suddenly, I was like, the world is my oyster. So I went from baking, you know, from that kind of food ethics point of view. When I finished my bakery training, a lot of the family bakeries were closing down where I was in Hertfordshire in England. And I went for a couple of interviews at supermarkets who had just kind of bought their in-house bakeries. And I do say that with inverted commas, because actually what was happening at that time was they were just buying in dough from Europe and then the bakers would be defrosting it in the oven at the supermarket. And I already knew that doesn't seem integrous to me. You're selling a product that isn't exactly what you're saying it is. So I decided I didn't want to work as a baker because the family bakeries were closing down. I turned to chefing. I was a chef on and off for 17 years, worked in London's first organic cafe and one of London's first organic bakeries. And then from there, went to drama school because I had an eye on drama school since arriving at this set of foster parents. Worked the Royal Shakespeare Company for seven years, toured with them to Stratford, to New York, from there to the National Theatre, and then realised this is fun. I'm enjoying this, but I don't think this is what I'm here to do for the rest of my life. So I then went back to the kitchen because at that point, I thought the only thing I know is that I can play with food 24-7 and I don't know what else I want to do. So I did that, went back and got into chefing. And then I've been learning yoga and I decided I'm going to go to India and be a yoga teacher, train for yoga and then teach yoga, which I did in Notting Hill for a few years and then realized I need yoga for me, for my foundation. It is not something that I want to teach others as my main income source. And I'm so thankful for the teachers that can do that because it means I can rock up to classes and be taught. So I think one thing for me of being fostered was that there was no one way that I had to live my life. I didn't have one set of parents saying, this is what we expect of you. This is how it should be. This is how you need to be. And so even though, especially with acting, I had this career that on the outside, a lot of peers at the time, my foster parents wanted me to be financially stable, which I was at a very young age because of those jobs. And I worked on TV for three and a half years as well, which added to that. I also knew this isn't it. This is fun, but this isn't it. And I went from there to then raw food. My husband gave me a book when we were dating and it was Daniel Reed. It was his book about longevity, sexuality and something else. But it was life changing because it suddenly made me look at this idea that what we put into our bodies had a real impact on how we felt. So I started the raw food business here in Australia when I moved here. And from there, I then realized there's so much pardon the pun, weight around food, especially for women. And I would run these raw food classes at my home here in Melbourne. And I would keep saying to the participants who are mainly female, this is not about weight loss. This is about you adding energy to your life in the form of what mother nature has put on the planet for us to eat in its most purest form. And yet at the end of every class, someone would say, what has more calories, celery or cucumber? And at first I found it funny, like, 
And then it happened more and more. And then I found myself actually getting very angry about it because I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, we have been indoctrinated into this lie as women that our worth is solely around how we look and how much we weigh. And if we are going to live out that myth, then we are going to leave this planet with that sense that we didn't actually get to achieve what we wanted to achieve or be who we wanted to be. And that was when I stepped into coaching. I stepped into how do I want to show up in a way that supports women to do what they are here to do. And I do coach a few good men as well, I have to say. But most of the women I work with are female leaders, either as entrepreneurs or in corporate organizations that really pay more than lip service, that are ticking more than boxes, are actually wanting to make change and wanting to empower their female leadership. And my thing has always been, I don't want to save the whales. Actually, I need to put a caveat. I don't want to hurt the whales. I love the whales. But I'm also aware of my capacity. So there's something that is very expansive for me that I get to walk alongside many women in many different industries and be the person that is walking alongside them so they can show up and lead in a way that is honest and integral for them at this point in our evolution. A few different career paths to cover there. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) You talk in your book several times this story about bullying a young girl, being bullied, but then your experience of bullying yourself and how this cheap access to power made you feel awful. I really enjoyed how you came at power from different perspectives throughout the story. How informative was that experience of bullying for you? Oh, I think anyone that is bullied, it 100% forms who you are. But it's interesting for me because I have friends and colleagues that have been bullied. You know, they were kind of like in the playground bullied. But I think when you add the bullying because race, you then experience that ongoingly all the time. Like racism is always there. It's not like this thing happened to me in the school playground and it has trauma and it has an impact, but it was in the playground. So for me, as being a dare to lead facilitator and facilitating Brené's work, we talk a lot about shame. And I think that story is kind of ultimately my shame story. That is the one story that if I could find her, I would want to apologize. I felt so powerless at that point in my life that I had to grab hold of some sort of power in some way. And that was the only way that I knew how. And obviously not an excuse for my behavior at that time as a young girl. And many people that feel powerless will then try and grab power in ways that are not nourishing or honoring of others. Mm. And it's funny, I've had quite a few people message me and say, oh my gosh, that was me. You know, either I was you, but mostly people say I was both. Yeah, at some point I was both. And I think that honesty is true. It's the failures of kindness that sting me now. And I think, oh, you could have done so much better. That's a beautiful way of putting it, failures of kindness. Yeah, I like that. I guess if we can take the attitude that we've learned from them then Mm, mm. and I think it is I shared that story with a friend before I put it into the book and she said maybe for those of us that were unkind at certain points in our childhood that's why we're so kind as adults that really hit me actually I remember many 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 years later in a kind of teenage thing I slapped a girl in my class because she had snogged so we say in England but had kissed my boyfriend at the time and And I didn't hit her very hard. And there was a lot of kind of peer pressure of go on at break time, make sure you go. And we're all going to be standing there and cheering you on. And I felt this pressure to do this thing. And as soon as I had done it, although she said that didn't hurt, what did hurt was how I felt about myself that I had done that. So having those kind of two experiences, I was just like, okay, that's just not who I want to be in the world. You write in power about how patriarchy can lead to internalised patriarchy and internalised misogyny, just like racism. Your experience of racism led to internalised racism. 
And I can relate to that internalization of misogyny sometimes in my self-talk. I'm interested in where we find the power to recognize that. How do we voice it and confront it and change it? What have you learned in that capacity? Well, that is the power, is to recognize it and to then communicate it. I share in the book that I sent out this text message to friends, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, to a group of women from the age of 15 to, I think, late 60s. And all I said was, share with me your internalized patriarchal voice and the flood of messages and responses. Everyone knew what I was talking about. And to be honest, I got maybe a third way through before I was crying because it was just so moving. And I have to state as well that patriarchy also doesn't work for men. It also has created a system where men don't get to show up as whole humans with emotions and fears and concerns. So I definitely don't feel that it, oh, patriarchy works for the men, but it doesn't work for women. It doesn't work for any human being. Any oppressive system doesn't work for anybody, I suppose, except for the oppressors. But then I'm not sure it even works for the oppressors. I think if we could get into their brains as they lay their heads on the pillow at night, maybe it doesn't work for the oppressors either. But yeah, I think naming it, being in safe environments where we can speak about it and own it for ourselves. My husband is white, middle-class, cisgendered, heterosexual Christian, like ticks all of the boxes, right? And I remember at one point when we had young children, we'd go out and about and he realized because we had these big conversations around this stuff because he has two biracial children and he's married to me, a black woman, and he works within human rights as well. And he realized for himself, he goes, oh my gosh, I've realized that when I see little boys, I ask them what they're doing or what they're reading. But when we meet little girls, I tell them they look pretty. And I was like, and that's it. I said, from now on, I'm just going to ask everyone, what are you reading? And that's the thing. It's like just owning what are these little things that we've taken on. And it's generally unconscious when my youngest is now non-binary. When they got dressed for the first time, I could feel my internal, you can't go out like that. And I never, ever, ever said that to my son. Never. When he got dressed for the first time, I was like, oh, that's creative. Isn't that nice? (laughs) (laughs) But suddenly when my youngest got dressed in a way, suddenly it's like, oh, no, no. So I think it's definitely owning it. And that's what I talk about. You know, one of the power principles is ownership within the acronym of power is ownership. We have to take ownership of our stories, the ones we've been told, the ones we believe, the ones that we've inherited, the ones we've experienced and really get curious about them and see what we need to pick apart. So I was listening this morning to a podcast with Mo Gordat. I don't know if you've ever listened to or read anything by him. He's a very interesting guy. He was talking about how women have been elevated to positions of authority and leadership in the world, but what are considered to be typically feminine characteristics have not been elevated. So while we're elevating women, we're elevating them in masculine ways, in a hyper-masculine society is actually how he described it. And that's to our detriment. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I'd never thought about it like that. And you're working with leaders all the time. When you're coaching primarily female leaders, what are you prepping them for? What is the world that you're seeing for them? I'm creating the space for them, especially those that have been given titles within organisations, that they have the title but their internal conversation with themselves does not resonate with the title that they have. And so I see my role as a coach is to create a space for them to lead as who they are. And that really speaks to Brene Brown's work, that who we are is how we lead. I don't coach the what. It's not what the person does that I'm coaching. I'm coaching who they are. So I've worked with leaders, example, who is in a room as a female, is one of 12 executives. They are the only female in the room. We worked together for two and a half years for her to get in the room. And then when she got in the room, couldn't speak, just could not own her voice in that space. 
And in the conversations that we had, we were looking at her owning why she was invited into that room. So yes, she could decide I'm the token female. That's why I'm in the room, but that's not empowering. She could decide I have certain traits and I have a certain way of leading that is actually needed in this room. That's why I'm here. And it's the same for me as a woman of color navigating mainly white spaces in Australia is that sometimes I know that the reason I'm being asked to do a particular thing because I'm a professional speaker as a speaking engagement. I know sometimes that I'm being asked as the token person of color. And I'm at a point in my career where I can own that and I can choose whether or not I want to step on that stage because of the impact I know I might have on that stage. But I'm also at a point that if I know that I'm not going to be psychologically safe on that stage, then I'm not going to go on that stage. So it's that thing around leadership that we can easily think, well, I'm just the person of color or I'm the person that you know, has to be in there. I'm the quota or because I am here, what do I get to do? And so I agree very much what you're saying with what Mo says as well, that we do have opportunities now that we've never had as women. And yet, unless our internal relationship with ourselves matches those external opportunities, we're never going to quite bring what it is that we have to bring. Yeah, I find it fascinating. And how did you become involved in Brené Brown's Dare to Lead as a facilitator? There's an organisation called The Hunger Project. I am a lead facilitator. The Hunger Project's way of operating in the world is that the hungry know how to get themselves out of hunger. They have the same internal resources, the same intelligence as every other human being on the planet, but there are external resources they don't have. And so I was leading a group of Australian business owners over to Uganda, where we spend seven days going through certain hunger project coaching programs and meeting certain village partners and talking to them about their leadership and their goals and their actions. And it's very much a program by osmosis. So they're giving to us, we're giving to them, we have conversations. And for this one trip to Uganda, Renee had just brought out Dare to Lead and I read it on the plane and it had such a profound impact on me because suddenly that book allowed me to own my form of leadership. That how she wrote that book made me realize that part of my internalized patriarchy was that leaders were white men in suits. And so therefore, whatever I was doing was not that, it was something else, but it wasn't that. And in reading that book completely gave me permission to own myself as a leader and my style of leadership. I then read that book every single day to that gathering of groups for the seven days that we were in Uganda. For the facilitation team, I then sent them all a copy as a thank you afterwards. And then Brené's training came up and there were three criteria. And one of them was that you had to be an International Coach Federation credentialed coach. You only worked with ICF credentialed coaches. You had to have done executive coaching 500 hours or more. And there was one other criteria, which I didn't quite meet, but I met those two. So I had to jump through a lot of hoops, had to read all of the books again from scratch, had to then do a questionnaire on each book, get a certain percentage. And then we got to fly to Texas and I got to train with 120 other people from different industries, from the big organizations, capitalist organizations that have realized we cannot do this power over model of leadership. We are losing engagement. We are losing productivity. We are losing the bottom line. And so they were in the room. So was the military. There were veterans there, counselors, coaches. It was an incredible room of people. And then we were with Brene for four days in Texas. And now we have meetings and webinars with Brene and her team looking at how's the work going on the ground. We're feeding back to her and her team what's working, what's not working. So it's a beautiful, beautiful community to be a part of and definitely speaks to what leadership can be in the world that we're in now. It's pretty beautiful. I love the idea of the alumni too, and not just dispersing and never sharing an experience again. I feel like if lockdown's taught us anything, it's how important sharing. 100%. And also because Brene, it's all based in research, she needs to know, she needs to get the data. 
what is resonating, what isn't resonating. We're on version two now of the program. I think version three is going to be coming up the end of this year, the beginning of next year. Now that she's written Atlas of the Heart, how do I now bring the book into the dare to lead? Because if emotional intelligence is an important part of leadership, we need to then bring the Atlas of the Heart work into the dare to lead work. The subtitle of your book is about leading without apology. And I love mm-hmm. that expression because I feel like as a woman, you're raised to apologize for everything in one way or another. Yeah. I wonder if for our listeners, you could talk us through the acronym, how you break up power and how you describe it in the book. I'd love to. And I think I even need to preface that with when I decided to write this book about power, it scared the life out of me, which I think can happen with a lot of creative projects when they come to the creator. It's like, no, 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 that's too scary. That's too much. So then I went to the Oxford Dictionary, being English, that's my source. And the definition of power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way. Just in reading that definition, it broke apart what we've been told power is, because then suddenly we all have it. It's just that there are so many oppressive systems in place that have us believe that we don't. And because it has been led by a particular group of people, so many people feel that they don't have power. So I broke it down into an acronym. So P is for presence, to be present to what is going on for you, what is working, what is not working in your life, and to be present to others, to be really present to other people in your life. O is for ownership, as we've already spoken about, taking full ownership of our stories and of our journeys and of our experiences. W is for wisdom. We've definitely coming out of that time of 1980s, 90s, where everyone was looking for a guru, as if somebody else knows how to live my life better than I do, which personally, as someone that's in this space with a credential, I find it very damaging, especially to women, because it has this premise that women are broken and they need to be fixed. And so for me, wisdom is around, we have this intuitive wisdom and we need to trust that no one knows who we are better than we do. If we're doing the work, which goes back to presence, we have to be present to who we are to know that we can trust our wisdom. And then equality, you know, I think a lot of listeners here are very aware of the inequalities globally in so many ways. But I think sometimes we forget about the equality that we get to hold as individuals. And one of my biggest lessons around that that I share in the book is that I have spent time with Richard Branson on Necker Island, and I spend time with these village partners in Uganda. And I know that there's a big difference between the resources of those two groups of people or that person or that group of people. And yet I no longer question my quality. So I'm not more than the people in Uganda and I'm less than Richard Branson, that I can stand equal as a human being and what I've got to bring. And then number five is responsibility, which is actually my favorite professional and personal development principle, that at some point we have to take responsibility for who we are and the life that we want to live. And I talk in the book when it comes to trauma and wounding, that generally our perpetrators are not going to take responsibility for our wounding. And at some point, we have to decide that we are worthy enough to seek support and seek help and to heal what we need to heal so that we then can bring what it is that we need to bring. And to be honest, many of us do our work from a place of wounding that is healed. It's not a surprise to me that the work that I do is with women that hold positions of power or creating power within a room and doing something in a particular way, because I came from a place of being powerless, and I have learned to build my power. For so many people that I work with, the work that we do has some roots in our experiences prior to that. Well, that's a fascinating idea to mine, actually. You know, I remember doing a particular workshop, and there was a woman there that was a policewoman. And what she worked out for herself is the reason she was a policewoman was because she had grown up with her dad in prison most of the time that she was a young girl. And she was so angry at him that she decided that her way of getting back at him 
was to become a policewoman. It was just amazing to see that. And then the facilitator said, do you enjoy your work? She was like, no, because I didn't actually choose it. I chose it as a 13-year-old angry teenager. Yeah. And interesting that she could articulate it like that. And then time time for a change. Which leads me to my next question of when did you know for sure that this was the work you were put on the earth to do? Was there a moment? Yes. There were quite a few of the one that comes to mind now. I had run my first retreat. So I'd moved away from the raw food, but I was running retreats around sort of well-being and we were sort of making the food together and things. But also I had created some questions and some processes and I was doing a little bit of yoga teaching. And it's like a three-day retreat in the Yarra Valley. And I'd spent that three days with those women and them getting insights around who they were and who they had been, but then society had told them they were something else or they listened to their partners or their dads, whatever it was. And just seeing these light bulbs go off and these hearts open and this intelligence being recognized for themselves and just breaking down stories. And I remember driving back home to my husband and children and actually having to pull on the side of the road because I was so overcome with emotion because I knew I had found it. I knew that I had found why I was here. It was to create safe spaces for women to show up and be who they are without apology. And I remember just sitting at the side of the road, sobbing tears of happiness, just like, what a gift that this is now the work that I get to do. I've only just begun this and this is how it feels already. And I'll be honest, I still feel the same. I feel exactly the same as I did 10 years ago when I made that decision. That's a massive privilege to then now have enough runway to live it. Yeah, 100%. I think for me as well, I turn 48 tomorrow. And for me, I just think, wow, imagine the coach I get to be in like 20, 30 years because of the life experience that I've had. Like That's exciting to me. And to create a space for women where they don't have time to be looking in the mirror at wrinkles or anything like that, because I'm here for a reason. Like I've got stuff to do. Stuff to do isn't busy, busy, busy. I talk in the book, the world does not need busy women. It needs more present and more powerful women. I'm someone that takes a lot of space. I'm an introvert. I have a lot of space in my calendar. I spend a lot of time in nature. It's not that I'm here to do, it's that we're here to be. And if we can get in touch with who we are here to be, what we do comes from such a grounded, regenerative place that it doesn't then become about being busy. It comes about stepping into a calling. Oh, I love that. Because the busy disease is pretty real. Yeah. And it stops us from knowing who we are. Some people that come to work with me, I want to find out my purpose, I want to find out my passion. And one of the things I say to them is, okay, great. Tell me, where's the space for you to start tapping into this stuff? And it's like, oh, I don't have any space. For me as a coach, I'm not prescriptive. I'm always asking questions and giving suggestions. Is it possible that this could work for you? Or do you think this would be more something that would work for you? You tell me what's resonating for you. And so for the more of us that are willing to slow down, which is scary, it then creates a space for things to come in that will never come in if we're busy. They just can't. And it is scary. But why is that scary? I actually have just had a client who's just decided, she's like, I resigned from my job 12 years and one of those professions that society kind of heralds as one of the top professions to be in. And we were joking the other day because I said, you know, be mindful that there might be an identity thing that comes in, you know, (laughs) because she's been so attached to this identity, but she is deliriously happy that she's now going to take three months with nothing in her calendar, nothing. And we're going to be working together through that time. And I said, this is where you get to be curious. What are the things that are going to trigger you around what you should be doing as opposed to your being? 
And that's literally just happened last week. So I'm so looking forward to walk alongside her as she experiences this. It is scary because we've been told that our title and our job is what brings worth. And our title and our job within the working environment. Because when women are at home and they say at an event, oh, I'm at home with my children, generally no one says anything after that at the end of the conversation. It is why when I was at home with my children for seven years, I practiced the phrase, I'm incredibly fortunate that I want to be and that I can be at home with my children. And then I never got the, but what do you really do? This is what I'm doing. This is who I'm being. I'm being a parent. That's what I'm doing right now. So that, even though it's one of the biggest jobs, still is derided. Well, we know that by structures in place around childcare and all those things. Whereas for dads at home with their children, we just think, oh, God, it's amazing. Picking up his own child. It's an interesting thing when we look at how society reveres certain professions and certain people and not others. And it does affect us and it affects our egos and it affects our identities. And it's very scary to put those things aside to create the space to work out who do I want to be and what do I want to give. Absolutely. It is extremely challenging having raised two children that are a bit younger than yours, I think. And so it's a lifelong job. And all those identity questions come up. You talk quite early in the book, and I loved it, this idea of differentiating between doing power and being power. Mm. And I'd love you to speak to that a bit more to describe what you mean, because I love that idea. Well, I think the way I spoke about that in the book as well does come from what Brene speaks about, about power over, that then power is this kind of scarce resource. And if I have power, you can't have it, which goes back to that story that I shared about me as a young child. But this idea of being power, that's the presence thing, that if we're in a room of people and there is just someone that is just sat in themselves, that is just happy to be there, most people's attention will go to that. And I had the pleasure of interviewing the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, last year. And one of the things that Liz said in those interviews was the most powerful person in the room is the quietest person in that room that is present. Everyone notices the quiet person in the room. They may feel uncomfortable because that person is quiet because they don't know how to be, but there's something in being grounded in our power and being present and taking ownership of who we are and trusting our wisdom and knowing that we are equal and taking responsibility for the places that we find ourselves in that cannot be ignored. I don't want to say it's quiet power. I said in the book, I don't want to call this feminine power or personal power or soft power. Power is power. It's the ability to do something in a particular way. And I want women to be able to say that word and not have to add these kind of softening words to it. Doing power takes a long time and it's not a one and done. I don't promise people you'll read this book and that's it. You'll never feel powerless ever again. What I do hope within the coaching processes within the book is that what it does is that it allows people to rebuild their power again and again and again. Sometimes we give our power away because we're smart. Because we know the only way for me to be safe in this room is to give away my power, or the only way to get what I want is to give away my power. But it is a structure, the power principles, which is the acronym. I do believe, and from the responses I've got, are very tangible ways we can rebuild our power in those moments when we've lost it or it gets taken away from us. So you describe a challenging situation with a client that when the company didn't uphold their deal of paying you 14 days in advance of, you know, yes. the contract. What you said about that was that it's around a new level of conversation and that the world needs a new level of conversation now. I'm interested in what that level of conversation looks like for you. I think what most of us want is elevated conversations. And I mean, even in our language, when we think about some of the great speeches in the world, I think we all want something that we can become ourselves into. 
not these low, low conversations that don't really give us anything to step up into. We want to hope for a better future. We want to hope that we can be better people. If we don't have hope, it's really, really hard to do anything. It's really hard to face the challenges. If we don't have beauty in our lives, if we don't have delight in our lives, if we don't have connection, for me, that elevated conversation is being able to bring together visions that we can all step into that really honor who we are as individuals. As I said, we can't all do all the things. That just leads to overwhelm and not getting out of bed. I'll have clients that come to me that will say, I want to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, okay. So are you telling me that you have the energy of an 18-year-old? Do you have no one to be responsible of at your home at all? You, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so we break it down and they break it down to, okay, the way that I can make the biggest difference right now is I want to make sure that everyone on my street knows each other, you know, which I know that's happened now because of the pandemic for a lot of people. But before that, I remember a client say they came in with all these lofty goals around how they want to contribute out there in the world, but actually realizing, no, it needs to be my street. That's where connection is going to be. So for me, it's about having these conversations around hope. I think most of us want to step up into something, even for ourselves. You know, how do I get to be a better person? It isn't about constantly doing. Maybe I'm a better person if on my walk, I stop and I stare at a leaf for five minutes. And that regenerates me in a way that when I get back home, I'm a kinder parent and a kinder partner, as opposed to I need to add something to my calendar that makes me more worthy of being here. The power of no. And taking those moments to appreciate this extraordinary place. 100% because it's all here for us in so many ways and we get to protect it in different ways. One of the reasons we bought the farm, I'm stepping into flower farming. I really realised through COVID, one of the things I'm committed to is bringing more beauty into the world. And flowers is one of those things. And what a privilege to be able to just grow beauty because I can. My activism is around delight and joy and connection because that is what sustains us to have the challenging conversations and show up for each other when things are really hard in the world. So you've described yourself as an introvert. Mm. How do you recharge after you've been facilitating being out in the world events? So I spend a lot of time on my own. I have an assistant, but she only comes in once a month on a Monday. She was here today. And I'm an endurance runner. I spend a lot of hours out in nature on my own. And I have morning practices that I do as well. I spend two hours with myself before anyone else gets anything else from me. And that's that thing of taking ownership of who I am and what I need. If I'm reacting to the world as soon as I wake up, I cannot sustain myself through the day. I already start overwhelmed. And so for me, just having that meditation time and writing time, I recharge around nature and playing with mother nature is really important to me. Resentment is a really good red flag. I never want to be anywhere and feel resentful. And if I am, it's because I didn't put a boundary in place or because I didn't say no. And that's happening less and less and less. It's great. I'm going to quote you to you now, which must feel uncomfortable, maybe, hopefully not. (laughs) There's nothing living that will survive if it's not being fed. This includes you and the things that are important to you. And I'm curious to know how you've maintained that focus. That can be really difficult as a woman, especially a parent. When we're conditioned to find our value in validating and caring for others. So how do you maintain that? I just didn't want to be a resentful, angry, bitter parent, to be honest. And I worked out very early on that my role as a mother was to be present to my children, to raise emotionally intelligent children, to not be afraid of their emotions or the emotions of others, and to know that who they are is what brings value to the world. That was it. That was my three things. Presence, emotional intelligence, yours and other people's, 
and know that you are valuable because you are here. Everything else, I don't really spend much time on. I don't want to be all the things to my children. I don't have the capacity to be all the things to my children. I don't want them to think that a woman's role or a mum's role is to be there. I said very early on, it takes a family to run a household. And that's exactly how it is, which means I can do my work. They can do their work. We have individual projects. I'm now living. We kind of feel like we're in a share house in some ways. We have family meals most nights, and that's very important to us as a family. I tell you the blessings of being around teenagers of this age now, especially my youngest, 16, 17-year-olds who want to be asked what their pronouns are, that feel very respected when you ask them and you use them, even if you get them wrong. The conversations that they're having, the things that they will no longer take that we took when we were younger. Obviously, they have challenges that we didn't have as well, like social media. That's a whole other conversation. But their commitment to the world and what is right and what is wrong and their activism. We had a situation where my youngest had their birthday at the farm. We had 17 teenagers, 16 to 17 year olds at the farm. And Maxine Benibas Clark's poem, Fridays, I read to them because I said to them, you may not know of this woman, of this author, and you may not know this poem was written for you. And I read it to them and I got very teared reading it to them. And a few of them did as well. And someone said, I didn't know that somebody had written a poem about us. And I said, that's how valuable you are. Mm. It's a gift. They're a gift, this next generation. I don't think we need to put it all on them, though. We still can do what we can do. But my goodness, they're a gift. And it's a gift if you get to spend time with them. It's such an interesting thing to say. We can't just say, oh, this generation's got it. There's still work we can do, 100%. And that we must do. I feel like we're morally obligated to sort out a lot of the damage. I think it was Prince Charles. Somebody asked him, why did you get into organics or why did you get into your environmental journey? And he said, because I want my grandchildren to be proud of me because they're going to ask us, what did you do? How were you living at that time? What was your contribution? And I think that's the thing sometimes for those of us where it can feel overwhelming. It's just like, you don't need to do all the things, just do something that speaks to who you are within the resources that you have and do the best that you can. I choose to believe that we're all doing the best that we can. And the more knowledge we have, the more we can do. The more resources we have, the more that we can do. But doing a little thing is better than doing absolutely nothing because it feels too much. Yeah. So you could easily check out and just yeah. say, oh, yeah. 100%. So you write about your guiding values, connection, growth, and well-being. I'm interested to know how you landed on those three and why and how they're the most important to you. Once again, in learning, you know, my personal development journey started 30 years ago now, and my values would change as I learn about values and coming away from the childhood, life is just what's given to you and you don't have a say. When I read my first personal development book at 18, I suddenly was like, oh my gosh, I do get a say and I do get to decide a little bit about who I am and how I respond to things and understand why I'm the way I am and what I want to change and what I can honour. And so they used to change quite a bit, but I had the same values now, I think maybe for eight years. I check in every year and I talk a lot in the book about how you can find your values and that sort of thing. But growth obviously is part of my work and I believe in growth. If we were speaking in a year's time, I would really hope I had something different to say to you, that I'd had different experiences, that I'd learned something new about myself, whether it's part of my shadow self or part of my light self. Well-being, once again, that idea of I know I have to be a well-being, the people I spend my time with, as well as the food that I eat, as well as how much sleep I get, as well as the media that I let into my life. And as a well-being, I can then give what I want to give to the world. And then connection, I just can't function if I'm not connected to myself, which is why I have my morning practices. I need to connect to myself first so then I can authentically connect with other people. If I don't feel connected to people, there's a big hole for me. And I don't need to be connected to all the people. 
it was very freeing for me when I realized not everyone is going to like me and I can't like everyone. So then my job is to learn who I am and then know that I'm going to attract the people that are happy to be with who I am, my light and my shadow and vice versa. So yeah, they're my three values. And I've checked in every year now for eight years. Are they still the three? Are they still the three? And I'm like, yep, they're still the three. I see. And that leads me to my last question, which is what's the vision of the world that you want to see? Oh, a vision of the world where everyone can stand side by side, honouring the humanity of each person and what they have to bring. That you are who you are and I can honour that with everything you bring and together let's create the world that we all want to step into. You can purchase Kemi's book at all good bookstores and learn more about her work over at kemineckthepill.com. Find Dumbo Feather Issue 70, A Meaningful Life, at Specialty Realtors or grab a copy over at our website, dumbofeather.com. For programs and events that might be useful on your own leadership journey, check out what's happening over at smallgiants.com.au.